I'm Steve Gilman, and this is Brand Story, where we help you build stronger, more sustainable brands by sharing insightful conversations with brand leaders, marketers, and professional storytellers. My guest today is Catherine Tuttle. Acknowledging like there's all this stuff you want to tell, it's not about you, it's about them. And so how can you engage them at that point of purchase and show how you're going to work into their life? Catherine is an executive advisor in the CPG space and specializes in helping founders create resilient, scalable brands. Catherine has over 20 years experience building brands and scaling businesses across the natural food and pet industries. And she began her career invigorating iconic brands like Snapple and Meow Mix and was part of the founding team at Fresh Pet, where she grew revenue from 2 million to 150 million through creating an innovative portfolio of products and was instrumental in redefining the pet category. So you really haven't done a lot. Welcome to the program. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Um, it sounds it sounds like a really fun time when you say it from <laughs> from the outside, right? Like it was all easy and it was yeah, all right. um, you know it was all laid out just like that. Yeah, um, you were just out there accomplishing things. It wasn't an absolute slog up a hill. No, no way. But I was, I mean, some of the most incredible brands and opportunities to get to work with. Um, so that's something I've always been really just grateful for. That it's. I mean, to, to work on such different brands and brands that were able to really make an impact in their space, it's been a fun ride. And um, I'm excited to kind of switch gears now and doing it for a lot more people versus just one or two brands at a time. Yeah, I think this is like a really exciting moment in your career. So I'm so glad I get to talk to you about this right now because you've spent well, most of your career being sort of a in-house brand whisperer for some really per- big purpose-driven brands, you know? So you've been like the voice of brand wisdom inside you know, growing corporations with founders trying to figure things out. When did you decide to just, okay, I'm going to go out on my own and do this new thing? It was, it was something that I never saw in my path. Um, You know, when I, when I started my career, something that I always loved about it was that you had that control and you, you called me a brand whisper. I don't think anybody who knows me would have ever described my style as a whisper. Um, but definitely that ability to shape something and have a strong perspective and, and bring it to life. And that's what I so loved about being on the client and the brand side was like, it, you didn't just talk about it. You could do it. And also doing it for small companies. Cause you can, work in a big company and it's, you know, a PowerPoint deck to a PowerPoint deck to a, does this ever happen? But, you know, the ability to do something and see it action and in market was incredibly gratifying. But, you know, I started to think about like, well, how do I take that passion and and how do I have a bigger impact, right? And I've worked with all these amazing visionaries who have this like, ta-da idea. And you're just in awe of that. And I'm like, I, I, I don't have my ta-da. Like, but then I realized my ta-da and my big idea is helping them because they are on this one side of it, right? But then they're missing this whole other skill set that can take this idea, right? That's amazing and passionate and just incredible, right? But it's just that if you don't have the people around you to figure out how to kind of transform that. And so that's, you know, kind of come over me in the last probably six months to a year of like, that is what I am really special at, um, is hearing those messages and helping them shape the message and then figuring out what's really important to do. So, um, I'm not sure it came to me in one, uh, one particular thing, but, um, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, doing some deep thinking, which you just don't get to do when you're in that brand space. 
churning on a corporate brand. Um, so I think it was slowly drug out of me, um, you know, walk after walk and, and uh, late night after late night. I mean, it's such an exciting time to take all that experience you have and try to bring it to brands that are in that unique space. Because brands always have a moment where they really need some guidance around brand, especially founders. You know, someone who's invented something or founded a brand, they have a, you know, a very entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial mindset, but they don't always know when to stop inventing and when to start trying to grow, right? Couldn't agree more. And, you know, that, that piece of just there's so much passion there of all of the things that are so important and them trying to do it all at once um, and being able to help them look through all of that and go, no, no, here's the thing that's really special that is going to be that big idea. Not just all these other things that are great ideas, but here's the one that's really going to be the thing that's going to take you where that mission you want to have is actually going to impact lots of people's lives. In a lot of ways, you're doing brand wrangling with passionate founders. So yeah, I think brand whisper is probably understated. You're probably more of a brand shouter. The word wrangle sounds about right. I think that has been used in my title in the past and, a, and an adjective I use quite a bit when talking with teams. <laughs> yeah, I think when you talk to passionate founders, you realize that who they surround themselves with it makes a huge impact. So, you know, if you surround yourself with people that are yes people or you surround yourself with the wrong people, your brand isn't going to grow. So choosing a voice that is going to help you at crucial stages in your growth that has that experience, I think that's so key. So your time at Fresh Pet, you and I haven't got to talk about it a lot. But man, that must have been such an incredible time. What do, what do you think one of your major takeaways from that was? Oh, wow. I mean, I had the opportunity to work and come in right at the founding team with the the some of the team that's still there today. And um, that was a journey where if we had known how difficult it was going to be, I don't think any of us would have agreed to actually do it. Um, we were like, oh, we're going to start this pet food company. Great. And we're like going to be, you know, done and sitting on a beach in a couple of years. Um, and literally the gentleman that started it is still there at the helm. Um, and it's because, you know, there was so much we didn't know about the business. And I think, you know, that was such a fascinating takeaway about how to behave, I think, in a space where no one had a playbook, right? This was well before the DTC playbook of like how to build, you know, this online pet, fresh pet food brand, which, you know, came, you know, 20 years later. Um, even manufacturing, we were trying to figure out, well, like we didn't really fit in what was like the human food regulations for meat and we weren't really pet. And so I think the biggest thing that it created was this mindset of, not accepting the status quo and looking at just how do we do it differently and how do you pull different pieces from different methodologies to build up what's right for you. And I think I've held that because there's so many people out here going like, this is the way to do it over here. This is the way. And there's not. Like, it doesn't matter on what thing you're talking about, whether it's branding or manufacturing. And being able to have that skill set to go, okay, I'm going to take a page from this and this, and we're going to put it together for the thing that's right-sized for us, um, and not just accept the rules for what they were. It was probably to the point 
where um, we got a little bit of a name for ourselves in that team that we were a, we were a PIA, right? That like, we were just going to be like, yeah, we'll accept that. And that's how the way that we're going to do it. No, we were asking vendors to do all sorts of crazy things. But I was really proud that like, they would call us that. But then at the end, they're going to be, they usually said, hey, our business is better for it. We're thinking about it differently. We've actually unlocked some things for other clients or customers and doing it. Anyone that's truly innovating is a pain in the ass, you know? There's just no way for for you not to be. I'm so glad we talked about that because when, you know, there are a lot of lot of people who help brands or, you know, start their own consultancies that just have like a method that's tried and true that they did in one industry and they don't know how to be flexible. And every situation is different. And I feel like that's one of your real strong suits is that flexibility that came, that mental flexibility and that passion flexibility that came from those early years at at Fresh Pet? There's no question. It's still, a, it's still a lesson being learned. Like as I'm working now and more and more with folks that are, and trying to help them plan strategy and not use strategy as this like icky big corporate word, right? But like, what's the most important stuff to do and what's going to really matter? You know, I look back and go, wow, I really was at certain times in my career, like trying to take this model and be like, no, you need to do this. And it's like, just like marketing and branding, no, you need to figure out like why it's important to them. And then they'll get the aha of like, oh, I see what this unlocks. But I definitely spent some time just going, no, we need to do this. And that was wildly successful. I can tell oh, yeah. you that. That always is. <laughs> but I think that's probably what what is so attractive about working with you for brands that are trying to break through is that you're not just stuck in one way to do it. And you've had to go through how to invent you know, on the fly ways to be successful with brands. So I think your background for any brand that gets to work with you that's trying to break into a space or trying to get through a period of growth, I think you're going to bring a really unique skill set because I've seen you in action. I've worked with you, you know, and it's a blast. So, um, you know, it's strategic planning. I want to segue and talk about that a little bit. It's not like it's like one of those subjects where I hope our entire audience didn't just go to sleep because the word strategic. They just all rolled their yeah, eyes. Yeah, it's like, That's oh crap, we're gonna talk about strategic uh, planning. But you know, for mission-driven clients and them trying to position their brands for like mainstream adopt adoption, you're trying to get your brand out there, especially in the CPG space. Having doing strategic planning is a huge challenge. And I think it might be a little bit of a secret weapon if you do it well. So you know, can you talk to me a little bit about that, about how strategic planning is so important for mission-driven brands? Sure. I mean, I think it kind of all starts with, you know, a mission-driven company, for the most part, has this amazing visionary at the helm, right? This person has this idea of this thing that they want to create, this, whether it's a, a whole movement or just a product that can do better. Um, and through that, for them, they're just thinking about, go, 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 right? And for me, that makes them try all these different things and all the different ways that they can bring it. Um, but where I've seen a lot of teams and founders get frustrated is they can't get the people around them. No one can ever work as fast or think as fast as the visionary, right? So they're always frustrated. And then they're frustrated and their team's frustrated, but strategic planning allows that to go, wait, I know you have these amazing ideas and let's figure out which is the most amazing and is it going to really have the impact on the mission 
And then how do we funnel everybody and get them all aligned to this one thing? And then you're going to see that speed and you're going to see that focus and you can start clocking through those things. And to me, I, I've lived with that frustrated visionary who then is forced to like go, we're going to, we have to do this because I've tried to just push it through with sheer might, right? And sheer might works. Like it works from zero. I would say like up to <laughs> depending on the size of your business, it works for a while. Right. And then you just can't sheer might it all because the complexity gets bigger and you have to bring along the team. And that's where being able to really clearly communicate, these are the most important things. And here's why, because they tie back to the mission. And so to me, that's, that's the secret weapon. And that's where you, I think you see people the ones that really make it versus the ones that kind of get stuck in in talking in their own language and never really make it to where, you know, every founder's dream, right, is that everyone in America is part of their mission or even the world for some founders, right? And and those are the, I think that's the difference between those two groups. Yeah, because I think people who are have that kind of passion and that founder mentality tend to want to keep inventing and adding products and adding new things and and pushing, like you said, everything through all at once. And it's so important to have someone that can help them think strategically and bring the team along because it doesn't scale the other way. There's just no way. No, you, you end up doing a million things, probably not all that well, if we're going to be honest, right? <laughs> um, and, and then it's not all working towards one thing. Building a mission-driven brand, food brand, whatever, it's hard, right? Like these aren't easy things. And so in doing it, if you can take away some of that complexity of trying to do a million different things and handle a team that's disgruntled, um, that just puts you in such a stronger position um, than without. I think it was it was really pivotal um, in our trajectory at Fresh Pet. We had... Um, we had a great group um, and a visionary who was able to also have that foresight to strategic planning. Wasn't did sometimes needed me to keep them in line, <laughs> where you know the piece of paper, and I'm like, remember this process we instituted that we talked about, um, the one that you wanted. Um, but it did because there was you know so many things that you could um, you could work on, and we just we needed that focus, and that was one of the things that when you saw the business, we struggled for many many years, and then like sort of. 2011 through 2013, the business just took off. And it's because we knew that there was just a few lanes that we had to really execute in. And that totally transformed the business. Yeah. I mean, that kind of focus is, is so important. So there's a few things I've heard you say or seen you write, but I just wanted to read to you and then just get you to react to, because they're some of my favorite sort of Catherineisms. Uh, Competition is rarely, rarely the killer, but lack of focus is. Can you speak to that? Um, yeah, I so I work with you know all of these brands, and I'll be honest, I'm the I sat in that for a long time of like hating on the competition, right? And they're evil, and oh, they're out to get us, and they're copying us, and it's like none of that matters. They are not what is going to end up pulling us down. And I think everybody wants to blame the competition for them not being successful. But to me, if you get focused and decide, how do you play your game? Um, 
and really dial into what's your right versus getting caught up in other people's game. We had some interesting competitors that I worked with, you know, through the history and they kept like really aggressively trying to pull us into their game. Like they wanted to debate on their key attributes and like even to a part where it was getting like a little bit aggressive and out of hand. And we're like, no, that's not what our game is. Like we're interested. We are really good at these things. We're going to talk about them. We're not coming over here and playing your game. And that ability just to kind of block it out and not start doing blogs and spots and Facebook posts that were counteracting, but just let it go. Um, and so to me, keeping that in mind is is a huge piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I wish more more brands that are trying to grow or even brands that are really well established would listen to that advice. Because when you focus on the competition, it starts to change who you are. Absolutely. You're becoming reactive and they're starting to impact your brand and how you express yourself. Wish them well and move on. Get on Get on with your thing. Yeah. And I have to say, I got really into, I read, and I still remember because it, it was like a, a, one of those you said early ask, like, well, when was the aha? And I remember having an aha about the competition. I was reading Simon Sinek's Infinite Game. And I, I still remember, I'm like, I think I was brushing my hair or my teeth or something like I can I can see myself in the mirror and he's going through and I'm like I don't have to hate my competition like that is not a requirement of doing this job and if we're actually all mission driven companies there's something to be learned and celebrated in the competition and like some people could at least acknowledge it just to go all right where's something that they did really well and like how can I learn from it instead of hate on it? Um, but even more so of like, you know, even the company I referenced in that example, they were still doing better. They were still going about the mission the best way they knew how. And it was through tearing others down, right? And that's never going to be my philosophy as a marketer. But they were still headed to the right direction. They were trying to pull the rest of the category up. Um, and so, you know, that's where it makes it a lot more fun to, to to market and to work in that space when you're like, okay, yeah, we're all doing it in our own way. And for the most part, everybody's doing it with a, you know, without malice and they're trying, right? It's just a different perspective on how it gets it done. Um, so I enjoy that. I, I do too. And I think it's so important. It, it, some people think it's a subtlety, but you can, I think it's much more than that because you can keep an eye on your competition and you want to, you want to see what they're doing. And, you know, there's a lot that you need to be aware of, but I think as soon as you start hating your competition or putting your energy there, it comes out other places. It comes out in your creative or it comes out in your, even in your strategy. So it's a disease. I've seen companies do start to do very badly because they started to focus on their competition way too much. And the word you used, energy, that was exactly the one that it zaps your energy to be thinking. You're, you're, you're constantly over here thinking about them as opposed to just thinking about what you are and letting that become something really special. Hating on your competition or focusing on them too much is based in fear. You're, you're afraid they're going to take your business. You're afraid they're going to do better. And fear is a liar. And it will always take your energy away from you, whether you're a brand or a human. So I think it's one of those things, like, I love that you talk about that because not enough people do, you know, I think it's a really important thing in branding. Yeah. I mean, I've worked in categories that are really tight space, like the literal, like, will there be room? Right. And there is always room. Like it will rise on a growing tide. And if you constantly think about just trying to knock out, 
this guy over here so you can get that spot, especially as a mission-driven brand, you're never going to succeed because you're not thinking about it. It's all about bringing everybody forward as opposed to just duking it out with like the other guy right in your space. Yeah, especially a mission-driven brand. It's not brands. It's not exactly the right energy to bring, is it? So there's one other thing I think you and I talked about at one point in the past, you know, tangentially and also that I just think is important to talk about. And it's really simple, but measure what matters. That's something I know you're pretty passionate about. Some companies want to measure everything. So how do you go about with, you know, emerging brands that are trying to make a difference around measurement and measuring what matters? So there's no question. I am a, I'm a data nerd. Love it. If I could, I would measure everything. So um, I'm my own worst, uh, uh, worst critic in that. But, um, you know, I think the first thing is to go back. And if you're truly thinking about the mission and that your goal as a company is to build that and obviously revenue and profit all come with that, right? What is the actual thing you want to measure, right? And is it the impact of that mission? And, you know, that feels very like fluffy and willy nilly and like that doesn't work on the real world, right? But it does when you start to think about, you know, is that mission and what do you want to measure, right? Is it that you want, you know, every home in America to have your product in their house because that's going to have a uh, change in, you know, the behaviors that support that mission. And so I think at first it's like really thinking about it is, you know, small companies love to throw out the the numbers. Oh, well, we're just going to grow 30% this year, right? Or 50 or whatever it is, right? But thinking about where is that long game and taking that moment to go, what do we want this mission to achieve? And then backing into that. And you can back into those revenue numbers and all the rest of it. But being able to think about that is so important. Um, and then not letting yourself get crazy with every different thing to measure. Or, I mean, especially as I think, you know, technology changes so fast and we have sort of this endless access to data, especially in, you know, e-com, it can become overwhelming, right? But going, what are we looking to do and what do these really matter? And, you know, you can start with 20 metrics, right? And But then if you start going, okay, which ones lead into which ones, which ones do this, right? There's probably three to five that end up really driving a business and, those are the ones that if you're really honest and you keep your pulse on and then you go, okay, we got a problem. We Now we need to dig into the 20, right? But it, I think people will pick the 20. They don't look at the 20. And so then things just go awry, right? Versus going, we're going to really keep tight on these three to five. And I think they see a lot better success because they're actually focused and can handle processing those three to five. I think that's incredibly good advice because I think way too many brands, way too many marketing teams try to measure everything without really giving thought to what are the movers, what are the three to five that will actually impact, you know, the business. And something you said that I think is really important, connecting measurement to mission, I think is is so important because so many people connect measurement to sales. And yeah, you're gonna, it's gonna be there. But if the ultimate goal is just to make more money, that's not an ultimate goal. That's a byproduct of an ultimate goal. That's also not a mission-driven company. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> but I've seen mission-driven companies do it. Right? Oh, Where All they're talking about is sales. Yeah, but it's. I think that's so important because for your team to want to grow, for the motivation to move Fresh Pet from where they were to $150 million, that wasn't because we won $150 million. 
that had to be because of something else. Yeah. I mean, there is no question. We could have built a brand and with that team built a regular old dry food dog brand and made it 150 million way quicker. But there, that team absolutely believed in the fundamentals that we were changing pet nutrition for the better. And whether that, like we even talked about it that like, you know, when times were really tough, I remember saying like, well, what's the worst case scenario, right? Like something goes wrong. We're like, we bankrupt, right? We knew we had fundamentally changed the category and it would never go back. We had changed consumers' expectations. So even if it wasn't us, there'd be someone who would come in and fill that space because we had changed how people thought about pet food and what they deserved and what was the right nutrition. And that's something that like now I still get like tingly. Like that is still something that I'm incredibly proud of for an industry. Yeah, we build a company, but like there is a whole different way out there to feed your animal and accessibility to that now than there was 20 years ago. Yeah, good for you guys. And I think that's what gets really talented marketers and really talented brand people up out of bed and working so hard because these aren't easy jobs. You know, this is some complex stuff we do and you're great at it because you show up with passion, you know, and I th it reminds me of, I had a conversation, I had Miyoko Shinner from Miyoko's, you know, vegan creamery on the program and her passion is just insane. I mean, she really made vegan cheese and vegan butter. She put it on the map. She redefined that whole thing. You know, and as a founder, her passion is really what led that entire company to grow. I love that podcast from her. There is no question. Every place you see her, she shows up and she is just so passionate. And it's visceral about like her belief in what vegan foods can do for this country and the world. Um, th those are the people that is just so fun to watch and and see. And, uh, you know, for me, really early in my career, I got this like crazy aha about like, Food is important. And it was sitting in like the worst not place you would ever think you were doing that. It was sitting at a focus group for Chef Boyardee, and which was like my first internship. So like I could only say that my good food journey, it started, it started at the bottom. And I was sitting there and we're watching a group of moms through the window. And she's talking about how Chef Boyardee is the best nutrition for her kid. And she's so glad it's a healthy snack. And she thinks it's awesome. And I just said to myself, oh my goodness, like brands have so much power when it comes to food. And that is a heavy responsibility. And it kind of sh shaped my mind as I started to look and thinking about like, okay, I can use this weapon for good and I can use it for evil. And like, how do I think about my choices? And, and just over time, you know, as your career grows, you have more and more power over those choices. Um, and, but it was just something that has always struck me and stays with me. Um, you know, you could always talk about the really like, oh, I love this healthy, nutritious, and that makes me, but, but seeing the opposite of that was just such a wake-up call. Yeah, I mean, I think being aware of the impact marketers and brand marketers can have on the world with what the work we do is incredible. It's a, it's a huge responsibility and you can either be like, Oh, I don't care. I'm going to market whatever, or it's kind of white hat and black hat marketing. I think that's the way I've always thought about it. So good for you for being one of the good guys, <laughs> you know, I've always loved to work. And so like the thought that it doesn't have this other half of it, you know, that like you can't spend this much of your time, at least for me, 
because I love the output. You know, there's some of the game I love, right? But it's the output and the impact that that makes it worth it for me. I don't know how people do the other thing. I, I couldn't. So I have a question for you, like a couple of questions that I think gets asked a lot that I think you're very good at. If a brand has limited resources, they all do. So when a brand has limited resources, where should they spend their time and money to have the most impact on growth? Because I think that's a question that any brand leader or any founder is wondering as they're trying to scale, as they're trying to grow, whichever part of their life cycle they're in. Yeah. And I feel like these days that question just becomes sort of overwhelming because there's so many tactics and now it's been democratized. So you like, you can do a lot of cheap stuff that just wasn't accessible, right? 20 years ago, you had like a few things you could do, but now it's just overwhelming what you can do. My my ideas and my perspective on this, it's never fun. It's never exciting, but I stand by it. Um, and I think the first place you need to look is um, your packaging. I am a firm believer that your packaging is the one piece of advertising 100% of your consumers see. Um, and so if you're not speaking to the consumer and telling them the right things, and that's one of the big things I see early with when you come into a founder-led brand and you look at packaging and you go, what are you talking about? And they're like, yeah. And they proceed to drive into a half an hour explanation of a single statement on the package. And you're going, have you asked somebody who you're not connected with what that means? And they go, no. Go ask them. And so I think that is one of the first places that I really look to. The second um, is taking the time to really understand what's going on in store. Again, not fun, but the other adage, you can't sell if you're not on shelf. It, it is literally impossible. It's, a, it's an old adage, but it's 100% true. <laughs> and so I think there's a ton of founders and you know now it's so blurred, whether you're sales or marketing or what have you in a startup, right? You need to be in store and seeing what you look like, where you are. Are you on the top shelf? Are you on the bottom shelf? Are you there at all? Um, and then figuring out a plan um, to make sure you're getting that momentum. Because I think that is probably the biggest curse of some of the early brands that they put it in and they think just somehow it's going to take care of itself or there's somebody else who has their eye on it. And it is backbreaking work of literally being in store um, and store checks and demos. Um, and I And I think, you know, as a demo, you'll never make money on the demo. <laughs> <laughs> it's just hard work, but one, it is incredible learning. And then you can, you know, use that to get the support in the store. So, you know, don't ever try to do the ROI on it on the day of, but long-term it'll ensure that you're on shelf, that you're noticed and the people in store know who you are. And over time it will have benefits. Um, and then I think after that, you know, there's so many areas that you can dive into and brands are doing incredible jobs thinking differently. And I think my other piece would just be, don't do it all, right? Small brands, small budgets, three tactics, doing really well. I mean, again, the philosophy, you're never ever going to outspend your competitor, but you can outsmart them. And it's sometimes scary how easy it is to do that. Like be a human. I hear you say that all the time, be a human, right? And, <laughs> and being a human and actually thinking about what your consumer wants, as opposed to what you want to tell them, um, 
That'll go a long far, and you can pick whatever tactic your heart loves. Man, I love that. I, I'm so glad you said that. The three three things, three tactics max, you know, and be great at them. Don't be mediocre at 10, you know? Don't spread yourself everywhere thinking it's going to work. Because I think, you know, especially with LinkedIn and all the places you see it, right, you think everybody's doing every single tactic, and they've got this massive, beautiful, integrated marketing plan. Um, and I, that's just not reality, um, especially now as, you know, capital's gotten tighter and, and the stakes have gotten higher. Um, that's just not true. And uh, you can do a lot with a little. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's incredibly important. So with mission-driven brands, you know, they have the curse of knowledge. A lot of times, the founder at least does, where they know what it means and they know they know it so passionately. They, I think they have a hard time having empathy for the regular person out there that might buy it, you know? So when you're trying to get a, a, a mission-driven brand, whether it's a specialized product or a new kind of product that people haven't experienced, you know, like a fresh pet kind of product or any of the ones you've worked on in your career, how do you position a brand like that for adoption of, for the more mainstream audience? How do you get past the niche audience to, to more people? I think one of the things that I see that's so important and unlocks a huge audience for people is when you're an early niche brand, right? You are preaching to the converted. Those people are already there. They're with you. They've got their pitchfork out for the competition. Oh, and it is, it is amazing time in a brand's like it, it is so passioned and you and you're starting to write all these ads about the competition and how evil they are right but as you go to that next step you realize there's a bunch of people that are sitting on the sidelines going oh my goodness i've been doing that thing i am that thing that you're saying is so evil and so being able to take that mindset shift to Nobody has to be wrong. You can just acknowledge there's a new thing out there that wasn't there before. And then people are released of all this guilt and this dissonance and all these other terrible psychological things that are going on when you're telling someone that they're doing something bad. And they can just go, wow, this is a great solution. This is exciting for me. I'm in. And it is, in my opinion, it is so much easier to get someone to move towards something versus against it. Um, and, and people are excited to talk about that um, to others. And that's, you know, obviously a big key on, on, on crossing that chasm and really getting to mainstream. I think that's so important. I love that we talked about it because, you know, preaching to the converted is part of your strategy. You need them to show up for you. But if you don't speak slightly different to the people who aren't converted, then, you know, you're, you're helping educate them. You're offering what you have and letting them enjoy it. So how you do that, it's going to be slightly different. And I think you can still even preach to the converted and do it in a positive way. You don't have to do it at the expense of the people who aren't doing the thing. So let me ask you a question about um, sort of the balance that I've, I, I think all brand marketers have to walk. Telling the brand story and marketing the products. It's kind of like building an airplane while it's flying, you know? So how do you help companies navigate this balance? Because it's a maddening balance of like, we need revenue, we need sales now, but we need to build this brand. And, you know, there's, there's this long-term, short-term push-pull. How do you help brands navigate that? I think that it comes down to, right, that there's the brand story and you want to talk about the mission and this big sort of long-term ethereal piece, right? And then the urgent is, I need to tell you what this does and why it's better and let's go, let's go, let's go, right? And I think that 
where you really see those two come together and then where I think you can make really hardworking, like, again, tactical vehicles, like some of the things where it's like, you know, this is a wobbler in a store, right? Which no one, no one starts out their marketing career going, I want to make wobblers, right? But it shows up. And so to me, I think there, there's probably two things, right? Is acknowledging like, there's all this stuff you want to tell. It's not about you. It's about them. And so how can you engage them at that point of purchase and show how you're going to work into their life and go, all right, I'm going to make your life easier. I'm going to make the stress be relieved. I'm going to make you feel like a better mother, right? All of those things. And that can be done in simple language, right? It's about shifting the frame of who's at the center of what you're doing. Um, and so I think if you really focus on them and not you, it's a way to, to do both. And I think that's where, again, back to that like playbook mentality, like, there's like the some folks that are on the like performance side and it's like, no, just spit stuff out of them till it works. And it's like then the brand marketers are tell this long, beautiful story. Right. And it can be done well. It's harder to do it well in the middle. Right. Because it's not just a set it and forget it playbook. But I think if you pull those two in, um, you can do it. And I think that, you know, now more than ever, you're seeing it that that whole shift is around people. Right. What's the best device or way to get that done? I mean, come on, I'm coming back again. Be human, right? Find the people. <laughs> that you're speaking to and speak to them like people. And speak to them like people, right? And and all of the brands, right, that I've worked on, I feel like, you know, you've we've worked and we had all this going on and it came to finding this insight where people could say, I see you and I'm with you. And I worked with a great um, company that was just, passionate about food. And they kept telling the story about how it was environmentally conscious and a circular economy of, you know, sort of pre-regenerative thinking. And at the core, they were just food lovers. And we talked about like an idea of just like letting your freak flag fly. This was a group that like would sit and talk for an hour about a tomato. Like that was what was in their core. And once they settled into that and said, okay, now I'm going to find the other people who can do that, that's where the magic and where things then, like you could just see how easily decisions were made and language came out of that because they really found who were they, their people and it was a human and it didn't have anything to do about demographics or shopping patterns. It was all about that love. Yeah, that's it right there. And I think you can do both. Uh, if you, it's way harder, but that's almost the only way to do it successfully these days. You know, I have written on my wall, it's not about you. You know what I mean? Because like, there's so many times with companies that they just, they're so in their thing. They just forget that like the consumer's not walking around thinking about your offering. They're walking around thinking about what they want. You know, they've got a life to lead and they're people and they're busy and their kids crying and all this stuff. What, you know, resonate with them, be with them. You know, be empathic to what they're going through and you're going to, and if your brand is a little bit more passionate or goofy or whatever, whoever you really are, you better be that because you can't fake it for very long. Um, and that's, that's what I love so much about the role I'm playing now is, you know, I'm able to stay outside of that, right? And so to come in and be like, and help them see there's all this amazing stuff you're doing. Let's reframe it to put the consumer at the center of it. Um, because it gets lost over time because it's hard and, and you start there and then 
you kind of fall off and then you can come back, right? And and so to be that partner for people to help, you know, bring them back, let's put the consumer at the corner of this and then figure out the things that are actually going to matter and what are the most important choices and make it a little easier to make some of those decisions um, as you go about the day. All right. So I've got a little bit of like a speed round for you. As we as we wrap this up, this has been a blast. By the way, I could I literally I think you and I could probably talk for three hours about this stuff. Yeah, we could. But I think the audience is going to love this because your your passion for what you do is really contagious. So you've been a CMO multiple times. What's the best thing and what's the worst thing about being a CMO? So the worst thing, there is no question, is it's FOMO and the fact that it will you never do it all right, like. No matter how awesome the budget or how cool the activation, right? Like at the core, that is the worst, at least it was for me. It was never feeling like you did it all and got it right. And so, cause there's never, there's never a finish line, right? In marketing and in business. Um, so I think that was probably the like great that was just, you know, you'd get to the end of this thing and you're like, ah, but, <laughs> um, and then I think the thing that, to me, as a CMO, was the best thing were the times where you really got to see the impact. Um, I remember at Fresh Pet, we had you know a wonderful customer affairs group, and they would just every so once in a while just send through like a really amazing testimonial. And I tend not to be a big softy, but I mean, to be able to sit at your desk and have someone write you a letter that says, not only did what you create save their dog, it saved their life by proxy, right? Because that dog was their only person as they went through depression or when they lost their husband. Oh my goodness. I mean, to talk about sitting at two o'clock on a Wednesday, crying your eyes out at your desk, right? But it was those big moments that I've, that I remember throughout my career that like, that's the power of being able to be a marketer is to have that have impact. And the same thing that I felt um, with my time at Farmer Focus and being able to really make a difference in farmers' lives and understanding those challenges and knowing that the work we were doing was changing that. Um, those are the things that like, to me, when you go and, oh, am I going to do another sell sheet or like another copy revision or all the things that just get to be exhausting, frustrating, those are the things that keep you going and going, I know this is why what I do for a living and why it matters. And that's that's my best thing. We didn't get to talk about farmer focus much, but man, talk about taking a company far. The work you did at Farmer Focus is extraordinary. I mean, how far that brand has grown. But I could say that about every brand you've worked with. That's very sweet. If the audience is interested in Catherine's work, go to her LinkedIn profile and take a look and you'll be like, damn. Um, well, I, I'm proud that I believe that I have the ability to find incredible missions and great products and that I can be the third leg of that stool. Um, there's just been... I've had an incredible fortune to work with the teams and the products that I have. So it's uh, something that uh, I am incredibly grateful for. That's great. That's awesome. What would you say that this season of your life is? What is this chapter of your life? It has been a total period of reinvention and changing all the rules that I have lived in my last 
20 years. And so choosing, you know, clients based on, you know, their missions and that they're great people and deciding that, you know, my success isn't garnered by a title and um, and learning. I think that's one of the things that I've been so excited about, um, choosing clients and things that I'm doing that have nothing to do with what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and to me, that's really, really fun. And it actually comes back to one of your previous um, guests, Dory Clark. I have been loving her books on just how to think differently and stay on this path of learning. Um, and so that was a fun listen for me. Yeah, she's amazing. And I think, you know, part of your new role, and I experience this, is when you're working with different companies and you're working in different spaces, you learn so much. You know, you just get reinvigorated over and over and over again. And it's a blast. Couldn't agree more. And that that's what I want to do is I want to wake up every day and be super excited to help people make their mission happen. Yeah. Well, good for you. Okay. Last question. And I will let you go because I know you got a busy day. If you could give your younger self any advice, what would it be from your from where you sit now? You got to check in. I think I didn't stop and ask myself what I wanted to be. For 15 years. And I think about how if I had had, I think the bravery to go, is this what I really want? And, and asked and thought about it differently. Would I have changed my path? And your path is always what brings you there. So I don't regret anything I've ever done. But I think about it that I kind of woke up in like my 40s and going, I don't think I've checked in since I was 28. And like, a lot of things have changed and a lot of my priorities. And so that would be the one thing is just because it was your version of success or your plan when you got out of college or when you were you know, coming up the ranks doesn't mean that has to be it forever. Um, you know, I, as a 28 year old, right? It was just about, all right, I'm the director. I want to be a VP of marketing, CMO, CEO. There was never a thought of where these different paths. And, um, you know, so fortunate to be able to finally have that and go, no, actually it looks really different. And there's nothing wrong with picking a different path. So that's what I would say. Check in often and early. I think that's great advice for anyone listening. And for all of us is like checking in with yourself and just gut checking your path and not feeling like you're just on an out of control railroad train to the success you imagined, I think is probably a really healthy thing to do. So, hey, thank you so much for doing this with me today, Catherine. This was a blast. This was so much fun. Uh, really appreciate it and uh, appreciate all your guidance along the way through my multiple chapters and, uh, uh, and your support now. Want to hear more inspiring stories? Subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, and share. It's the best way to support us. Thank you for listening to Brand Story.